This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. The word comes to us today from 1 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, We'll read all of chapter 6 and then continue on through the first two verses of chapter 7. So 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 7, 2. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home and away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this great evil." But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, 
one for Ekron, and the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that as we see here an act of incomplete repentance, a repentance that is not according to your word in ways that it would drive us, if needed, to true repentance, and that we would understand and honor and worship you as you desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had someone apologize to you? Have you ever had someone tell you that they're sorry, but you had good reason to believe that they didn't mean it? As humans in our developmental stages, we all learn the importance of apologizing and trying to make things right when we do something wrong. Because we are all wired for this, we attempt to reconcile with those we care about when we wrong them, we can probably start to sense and start to detect when others may do it from a place that's insincere. Maybe a good example of this is if you ever see a public scandal involving some kind of famous person, a celebrity or a national politician or someone of the like, whenever they do something wrong, they'll usually get everybody together and They'll release some kind of public statement. Maybe they'll have a press conference where the statement is clearly canned. It's carefully worded. It's not the words of the person, but rather some professional consultants they brought in to, to try to make it sound like a really good apology, but you can tell it's not real. Um, and it's carefully worded to not assume too much responsibility for what happened. Perhaps the most famous example of this is you ever hear the phrase, uh, I don't remember who originally said it, but mistakes were made. This was actually an apology, non-apology, issued by once by a politician that's kind of become a popular phrase for not really taking responsibility for what happened. Because somebody had to make those mistakes. Well, far greater than any need of ours to be reconciled to other people is our need to be reconciled to God. But God knows our hearts. He knows not only what we do, but why we do it and what we think, what we really think about what we did. God knows if our repentance towards him and our expressions of confession and piety 
are sincere or not. God seeks people who worship him not only with their lips, but with their whole heart. Last week, we began looking at this account of God among the Philistines. In the warfare of 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And then in chapter 5, it was taken to the Philistine city of Ashdod and stored as a war trophy in the temple of Dagon. Well, there God humiliated Dagon, knocking this idol over twice and breaking it into pieces. And then he inflicted plagues on the Philistines of tumors and caused a great panic to break out among those people. The Philistines in their arrogance had attempted to humiliate the God of Israel, but the God of Israel humiliated them. And so, in the end of chapter 5, we saw that the Philistines, after shuffling the ark around to different cities only to achieve similar results, they now desire to send God's ark away for good. Now, one could look at this account of what comes next in chapter 6 and into chapter 7, and almost see something that looks like repentance from the Philistines. Maybe they really are sorry for their offense against God and want to be reconciled to him. However, as we study this text, we will actually see a tragically different picture. We don't see a true repentance and a turning to God and worshiping him. We see an incomplete repentance. A repentance not concerned with being reconciled to God, but simply turning away his material punishments, making the problems go away. We see a repentance that is truly no repentance at all from the Philistines. And then even later we see it from God's own people. So we will look at this incomplete repentance in three points. First, we see a reckoning in verses 1 through 9. What are the Philistines going to do with God's heavy hand against them and how and seeing how all their previous efforts have failed? And second, we will see the return of the ark in verses 10 through 18. How do the Philistines finally rid themselves of it once and for all? And then third, and finally, we see the receiving of the ark in verse 19 through chapter 7, verse 2. What happens when the ark comes back to Israel? So again, we have the reckoning, the return, and a receiving. So first we see the Philistines come to a point of reckoning in verses 1 through 9. Now the narrative that we looked at last week, it might have seemed then like a sequence of events that happened fairly quickly, maybe just over the span of a few days or a couple of weeks. However, in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see that this episode with the Ark of God among the Philistines played out over a much longer period of time, in fact, seven months. See, the Philistines did not quickly arrive at this point of realizing that something needed to be done. I think any of us who have gone through seasons of rebellion and backsliding in our lives can probably attest to the fact that Coming out of something like that takes longer than it should. But after these seven months, the Philistines are looking for answers, as we see in verse 2. Now we read here that they call for the priests and the diviners. Now what is wrong with doing this? Well, as far as we can tell, these are the priests and the diviners of the Philistines. These are the ones who have led them in their idolatry. 
These would be the priests and the diviners of, for instance, the powerless Dagon, who lies in pieces on the floor, and the other false gods of wood and stone among the Philistines that have no real power. See, the Philistines should have taken the fall of Dagon in chapter 5 as a rebuke of their idolatry that it was. They should have turned to the living God and sought the guidance of those who worshipped him. We know, for instance, that while some of the priests had died in the battle of chapter 4, the corrupt priests, Eleazar and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, we do know that there were some true priests of God out there. For instance, Samuel is still out there somewhere. There remained among the otherwise rebellious people of Israel some who did bow the knee to the true God and believed his word. But it seems that the Philistines are not actually interested in serving God. They just want to stop the calamity. They just want to stop the sickness and the death and the panic. This incident should have caused the Philistines to turn to God, but instead they want to turn God away. So in verse 3, the priests and the diviners of the Philistines unveil a plan to do just that. How to send God's ark away and in turn send God in his hand of judgment away. Idolatrous pagans as they are, the best they were able to come up with is a half-truth. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Now, by all means, the Philistines had incurred the guilt of sin against God, and so they would have needed a guilt or a trespass offering. But God had prescribed in his word exactly how guilt offerings were supposed to be done. This is documented in Leviticus 4 through 7. What guilt and sin offerings worshipers of God were to bring, depending on the nature and severity of offenses. So they would bring a bull for a sin offering, or they would bring a ram for a guilt offering. Now these would have been some of the larger and more expensive sacrifices, demonstrating the severity of guilt and sin before the Lord. These were also offerings of which the people bringing them received no portion back. Remember earlier, back in 1 Samuel 2, we had looked at sacrifices of which the people got some back. These were thanksgiving offerings. They represented a different part of the life of Israel. But guilt and sin offerings, all of it goes to the Lord. None of it is given back. So, if the Philistines were interested in turning away from their idolatry and serving the living God, this was the sort of thing they should have done. But that is not what they do. Instead, they come up with their own scheme. Just as the Israelites in chapter 4 came up with their scheme concerning God's arcs to try to get a victory in battle, a scheme which backfired miserably and resulted in 30,000 deaths, the Philistines will come up with their own scheme here with God's ark that while it may stop their current plague, it continues their whole nation's march to spiritual death. And we see this scheme in verses 4 and 5. They will make images of the things that plagued them. They will make images of gold, of the tumors that we saw afflicting them in chapter 5, this swelling, this disease that had broken out. And we also see that they will make images of rats or mice. So apparently the plague had not only brought these tumors, but also a rodent infestation. 
Now, no one can blame them for wanting to stop these plagues. These are serious problems. If you've ever had an infestation of mice, it's fairly common around here, but it's not pleasant. It's not something that you like to have. First time I ever had a mouse in my house, I actually, uh, when I was a young bachelor, I had a ground floor apartment, and it was in an older building, and a mouse got in from outside. Just one mouse. But he was quite a persistent one. It took a few weeks for me to trap him, and in the meanwhile, he made a mess out of everything. I was chewing things up. I was finding droppings everywhere, finding all the fragments of things that he was chewing up and dragging around. Just one small mouse. He was probably about three inches long with his tail. Not only that, but mice, they carry disease, rabies, and all other kinds of fun stuff. So God has given the Philistines plagues. He's given them these tumors. He's given them these mice or rats. And so they decide to try to appease God with the images of the things that God has sent upon them. Now, the irony of this, as Richard Phillips points out, is that they are attempting to appease God with unclean things. Look, for instance, at Leviticus 11.29. Now these are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the great lizard in its kinds. So rodents of this sort are unclean. Leviticus 13 lays out laws for swelling on the body. So things like these tumors the Philistines had. These two were unclean. But again, the Philistines are just going to their own priests and their own diviners and coming up with their own schemes rather than seek out counsel as to how God wants to be worshipped as to what proper repentance should look like. Instead, they're just basically trying to bribe God with gold. But gold in the form of these unclean images. So they make five of these mice and then an untold number of the tumors, and they send them with the ark. Now these are to represent the five great cities, the five lords of the Philistines, and then all of the other cities and villages as well. And then we get more of the half-truth in verse 6. The Philistines recounting something that they have brought up before. They had knowledge of the plagues that God did against the Egyptians to free his people from the Egyptians in Exodus. The Philistines realize that they are being similarly punished. The diagnosis is correct. God is punishing them for their wickedness and disobedience and idolatry but their solution is not correct. Instead, they choose to make gold images of unclean things and send God's ark away so that they may simply forget that God ever came to them. Now, while they have this correct diagnosis that this is punishment from God, they maintain some doubt about it. They are not fully convinced that it is God's power that, does, that did this. This is seen in what they do next. In verse 7, they are to take the two milk cows, which have never been yoked. Not only have they never been yoked, but they have recently calved. So these cows ought to be inseparable from their calves. They wouldn't naturally leave them. Now, why do the Philistines do this? Why is this what they choose? Well, they are testing God. The only way that these previously unyoked calves, so they wouldn't know how to walk with a yoke on and pulling a cart. And not only that, but separated from their young calves, 
they wouldn't want to leave. The only way that these cows are going to take the ark back where it goes is if God supernaturally intervenes to get it there. So the Philistines are still maintaining their doubts about if this is really coming from Israel's God. So they, similar to Gideon with his fleece in the book of Judges, they put a test before God to see if this is really him. This is made clear in verse 9. They say, watch if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So despite this grave affliction that has followed God's ark from city to city, their pre-existing knowledge of the situation in Egypt where God struck the Egyptians with plagues, they're still leaving open the possibility that, that maybe God really didn't do this. Well, this shows us once again the power of sin and unbelief. To us, as God's people, it is beyond obvious that this affliction was from the Lord. But to the unbeliever, even the greatest and most terrible and wonderful of signs would not be enough to convince them. In a sense, these people recognize that God is in this, but to borrow the language of Romans chapter 1, they will neither glorify God nor give Him thanks. Even undoing or trying to undo by their own sins, by their own schemes, their sin against God, even this comes with strings attached and attesting of God. The Philistines have just enough knowledge of God to be condemned in their unbelief. God has appeared to them, but they have made it clear by their response that if he really has appeared, because they're not so sure, all they really want is for him to leave. So, having looked at this reckoning by the Philistines, their decision and their method to send the ark of God away, while still unsure if God really is behind any of this, we now see the return of the ark in verses 10 through 18. So they put the ark and they put the gold images on this cart and send it away by these cows. The lords of the Philistines, these rulers of the five great cities, they follow the cart at least to the border, to see if it actually goes where it's supposed to. And then as soon as it does, they turn around and leave. There's no sticking around to see how the ark is received or how the god of that ark would be worshipped upon the ark's return. For them, this was over. In fact, later in verse 16, we see that they go home the very same day. And these cows, who naturally would have had no incentive or inclination to take the ark to Beth Shemesh, they not only take it there, but they take it there on a direct, non-stop line as fast as they can. No stopping to rest, no stopping to eat, they go straight there. So after seven months in Philistine captivity, the ark of the covenant returns to Israel. Now in Beth Shemesh, it is the time of the summer wheat harvest. And we see initially when the ark returns, from, we see from the inhabitants there this response of rejoicing. They are overjoyed that the ark has returned. But they also then make a fatal error. Rather than get the ark to a proper place, they right then and there take the cart apart and just sit the ark up on a rock and then start offering their sacrifices and doing their worship. 
We see that the ark is placed there in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This is probably not the same Joshua of the book of Joshua. But they place the ark there out in the open. Now, we also read in this text that there were Levites there. They should have known better. The ark had to be properly concealed, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, we get a final accounting of this episode from the Philistine side of things. We see the immediate departure of their lords back to the five cities. We see that there was the tumor for each of the five prominent cities, and then tumors for all the cities, or sorry, there was the tumors and there was mice for the five major cities, and then for all of the cities. This was, at the end of it all, a lot of gold. They intended this gold to be a guilt offering. They thought, basically, if we send enough gold, it will show God that we're sorry. However, we do not have any indication that God accepted this offering for their guilt. It was not conducted according to God's law for guilt offerings. And even if it was, had the Philistines demonstrated true repentance? It does not seem that they have. They return immediately back to their land where they have stood up Dagon to be their God once again. But God will not share his glory and his worship with Dagon or anyone else. We don't even actually see here if the plague stops or not. It seems that it did because if not, we would probably have heard more about it. But what does seem clear is this. The Philistines have done only what they believe to be necessary to stop God's temporal judgment. At nowhere during this episode do they appear to truly repent of their sins and turn to God for their deliverance. They will continue as a people at enmity with God. They would rather have their idols. This is, for now, the tragic ending of the Philistine story. But now that Israel has the ark back, what happens to them? Well, this brings us to our third and final point, receiving. How was the ark of God received upon its return to Israel in Beth Shemesh? Again, we saw initially this response of rejoicing and burnt offerings and worship of God breaking out. But this does not last long. We see in verse 19, that he, that is God, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, if you're using a different English Bible here, you might see that it was only 70 struck down instead of 50,070. There's some conflict in some of the ancient manuscripts that we have of this text. I think it was probably actually 70, but it could have been 50,070. And either way, the point is that people mishandled the ark, and so they die. After the ark was lost in chapter 4, and the reasons for which it was lost, which were false worship, the improper use of God's things, one would think that once the ark returned the people would do everything by the book. And again, we read that there were Levites there who would know what needed to be done with the ark. But sadly, this is not the case. One of the requirements of the ceremonial law set forth in Numbers 4.20 
was that the holy things and the ark was a most holy thing to be kept in the most holy place were not to be looked on. It wasn't that you couldn't touch it. It wasn't that you couldn't open it up and look inside it. You couldn't even see it unless you were the high priest and following a very particular set of instructions. The ark had to be kept separate from the people because God is holy and the people are sinful. But instead, the ark seems to become a tourist attraction. Word gets out that the ark has been brought back. And after all, it was quite a sight to see. It was this huge box that was ordained with all the gold, the statues of the cherubim. It was quite a sight to see, and so people want to come look at it, even though they're not supposed to. And for that, they die. See, the first thing that the people should have done upon the ark's return is to put it in a proper place, to put it where it couldn't be illegitimately looked at or touched. But they didn't do that. And so, once again, because God's people are again polluting his holy things, he strikes them. Now, it might be argued here that God was being unjustly harsh in striking the people for this. They were just looking at the ark, after all. Well, this is to misunderstand the absoluteness and comprehensiveness of God's holiness. God cannot and will not entertain unholiness. Not even once. Not even for a second. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The only way we can be restored to God, be reconciled to God, is to have our holiness restored. We cannot do this on our own. We can only be made holy through the holiness and righteousness of Christ, through his blood which cleanses us from sin. The God-man, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, had to die so that we might receive this direct access to God. This was symbolized most powerfully that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple, that thing which separated the most holy place from the rest of the world, was torn from top to bottom. This ceremonial law of separation that would bind God's people, it no longer did. In Christ, we have direct access to the Holy of Holies. In the days of Samuel, this was not the case. The people were to show proper regard for God's holiness, and this separation was to be maintained. And that day at Beth Shemesh, they did not. So just as the Philistines and Ashdod had attempted to make God's ark a spectacle before Dagon, the people of Beth Shemesh had made God's ark their own spectacle. As the Philistines were struck with a plague, so too the men of Beth Shemesh were struck with a plague. And most tragically of all, just as the Philistines' response was to send God's ark away, and by extension, send God's presence away, the people of Beth Shemesh desire to send God and his ark away. Again, they have a proper diagnosis. In verse 20, they say, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And that is the question. No one is able to stand before the holiness of God. But God had made a way. He had made a process by which he could be accessed. In the Old Covenant, it was through these types and shadows, through the ceremonies that were followed, the sacrifices that were made. 
all of which point forward to Christ. So do the people use these means which they were given to approach God? No. They, like the Philistines before, send the ark away. They send messengers to carry off Jerim to have the people from there come and take the ark where it would stay for the next 20 years. God had come into their presence at Beth Shemesh, but they, like the Philistines, just wanted him to leave. They had another option. This is what we see when the ark goes to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, there is one significant detail about Kiriath-Jerim. It was actually a Gibeonite city. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean and why does it matter? Now, the Gibeonites, they were Canaanites. They had occupied part of the land when Joshua led Israel to conquer the land. In Joshua 9, the Gibeonites tricked Joshua and the Israelites into sparing them, into entering a covenant not to harm them, because they realized they would not be able to stand against the Lord. So the result was that the Gibeonites became something of Israelite converts. They were not of the line of Abraham, but they were engrafted as a part of the people. And in these opening two verses of chapter 7, it is to their city that the ark goes, and where the ark is taken proper care of. They appoint a priest to oversee it. They hide it from where it will be seen to avoid a similar disaster that came to Beth Shemesh. These outsiders, the Gibeonites, will let God's ark dwell among them and show God the proper reverence and honor that he is due. They would have the ark for 20 years while the rest of the nation lamented after the Lord. While the ark was lodged there, people didn't come to worship God there. They didn't have the sacrifices and the festivals there. While the ark was in the presence of a faithful band of outsiders and it was safe and it was properly reverenced, most of God's chosen people remained estranged from it and estranged from God. A further revival was needed. And that is where we will see, Lord willing, next time, that Samuel reemerges, and we see something of a revival, something of a reformation. But again, this ark is not going to leave Kiriath Jerim for 20 years, and in fact, it moves because a king arrives to move it to its proper place. That will be King David. So, we have seen in this Philistine ordeal of these few chapters of 1 Samuel an object lesson for us. What do we do with the presence of God? How do we regard his place and his power? Is God an inconvenience to us that we feel inclined to banish, to keep at safe distance, to leave with someone who cares more, or to send away to somewhere else? How do we repent of our sins against God? Do we wholeheartedly return to him and worship and serve him as he asked? Or do we have something of an incomplete repentance, like we saw here from the Philistines, that pays some kind of external homage to God, but ends just as soon as things go back to normal? This is what the Philistines did, and it's even what the Israelites of Beth Shemesh did. Or do we... Small in number, 
our own brand of cultural outsiders as we are? Are we faithful to love and serve God, to believe in his gospel, to worship him as he has called us to do, and to be zealous for his name? What do we do with God when he comes to us? Perhaps you're here today and you see this account of God's holiness and the punishments for transgressing it, and it frightens you. You ask, as the people of Beth Shemesh did, who is able to stand before this holy God? There is an answer. They are able to stand who are washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 5.1 that those who are justified by faith have peace with God. An olive branch of peace came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to reconcile dead, lifeless, rebellious sinners to their God. To those who would repent of their sins, truly repent of their sins, believe in this gospel, and worship the one true God, there is forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and everlasting life and fellowship with Him. But to those who simply desire to turn God away, to have Him removed as though He does not belong, there is only sorrow and death and condemnation. So which are you? And where will you stand on the last day? Where will you stand when you walk out of this room today? Will you love this God and be grateful for His love and mercy to you in Christ? Or will you send God away out of your heart, out of your mind for the week to come. May we never send our God away. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us, even as it challenges us, even as it convicts us, because we know that we are often inclined in our lives and going our own ways to want to keep our distance from you and to send you away. I pray that we would properly regard you in all that we do, that you would forgive us where we have sinned against you, and that we would always be a people that loves you and cares for that which is yours. And most of all, I pray that we would know and believe and trust and rest in this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has fully and finally reconciled us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.